Hi, this is Kevin Goldstein, and you're listening to Strohs Across the Globe. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 8 of Strohs Across the Globe, the podcast presenting an international view on the Houston Astros, brought to you in association with Apollo, all Houston, all original. I'm your host George Martin, also known as at Astros Fans UK on Twitter and similarly on other platforms. Excited to say that I have another fantastic guest for you on the show today. As the players assemble for the start of spring training, it presents a chance to get a first look at any new players on board, such as on your relievers, at the youngsters looking to make it into the big league ball club for 2021, plus the many familiar returning faces too. Thinking about the makeup and construction of the Astros as a major league club, this week's guest is a man who knows all about that in terms of finding the pieces and putting them together on a player level, Kevin Goldstein. Kevin was with the Houston Astros for eight years, predominantly as director of pro scouting and later as a special assistant to the GM in respect of player personnel before leaving this past October. He has now returned to write for Fangraphs once again and I was eager to pick his brain in order to get an insight into what his roles with the Astros entailed. We discuss an entertaining variety of topics ranging from how he first got the role with the Astros, how trades actually work in practice and what scouts are really looking for in players now, with an interesting view on the future of analytic metrics. This is followed by an assessment of the Astros' front office modus operandi during the Jeff Luno era and a forthright look at the 2017 scandal fallout, particularly as regards the focus on an email Kevin Goldstein sent to Luno, which garnered an unusual amount of attention. This is not one to be missed. Plus, we also have the winner of the Astros' Generations Cap competition, so stay tuned for that as well. As ever, I am at pains to stress how delighted I am by the continued positive feedback for Strohs Across the Globe. I'll say it again. Please make sure you subscribe, rate and review Strohs Across the Globe on the podcast platform to which you listen to it. Your support is absolutely everything and it pushes me to keep delivering for you as my listeners. Keep it coming. It means so much. Okay, it's time now for my discussion with Kevin Goldstein and a fascinatingly open and honest inside view of working for the Astros front office to help assemble some of the greatest teams we have ever had throughout the most extraordinary transformation in the club's history. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I did recording it. Right, I am delighted to be joined on the show by another superb guest for you today, who I am very excited to break down Astros baseball over the last decade with. It may not perhaps be a household name amongst Astros fans, but that in no way undermines the importance of his work for the club across eight years, primarily as part of the Jeff Luno regime. He is the former special assistant to the general manager in respect of player personnel, and now once again writing for Fangraphs, Mr. Kevin Goldstein. Thank you so much for joining me on Strohs Across the Globe, Kevin. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me, George. Good to be here. Strange times that we live in. You don't live in Houston. I live in Illinois. It's crazy what's happening in Houston right now with the ice storm and the power outage and the various failures across the electrical supply organization. Is it me or is that extraordinary no matter how you look at it, right? I mean, it's the United States. If there's one thing we're really good at, it's it's governmental failures. Um, <sighs> We're just we are just excellent at it, and um, yeah, no, it's pathetic. It's it's horrifying. It's pathetic. It's really upsetting. Um, you know, I don't live in Houston, like you said. I never lived mm. in Texas, but I got a lot of friends there, and certainly have been in touch with them. And you know, I had one friend, uh, you know, a friend with a with a, a young child, as in like a year old, and, and not even a year, and and you know, no power for four days, and, and for for utterly no good reason. Yeah, and I can't imagine having to go through that. What's the media focus been like in the rest of the country on that? Um. 
In what, like, media-wise? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, what's the um, response I mean, been? it's been negative, but, like, you know, it's it's this is the United States, and, and media response is nothing. There is no media response. Like, if you turn on any news channel, they're still talking about Trump, even though he's not even the president anymore. That's just how the news here works. Um, news is uh, looking for clicks, I guess, as they say, mm-hmm. and, and they don't talk about anything. They're not, I mean, they, they bar- they've barely addressed it. I mean, all they're talking about is, you know, a, a, a impeachment trial that ended a week ago. Um, yeah. You know, if Trump says something, that's what they'll talk about. Um, yeah, you don't. Uh, unfortunately, this kind of stuff doesn't really get covered very well. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, things on this side of the pond aren't so great either. I think the less said about that, the better. Let's move on to more <laughs> interesting discussions and your time with the Houston Astros. Let's rewind back to was 2012. You were still, I believe, you were still writing for Baseball Prospectus at the time, and you obviously you'd been doing your work for ESPN. You had MLB Network Radio, you had your weekly podcast, and also writing for Fangraphs as well. I just wanted to delve a bit deeper. How did the actual, the first role that you had when you joined the Astros as a pro scouting coordinator, how did that role come about? Um, I mean, 2012 was a really weird year for me. Um, you know, even before I heard from from Jeff Luno, uh, I already had heard from some other teams. And actually, you know, I met with a team in December of 2011 at the winter meetings. Um, and, and was talking to a couple other teams. It just kind of felt like one way or another I might end up working in baseball, and, and some things were, were going here and there, and you know, had some meetings, had some lunches, had some conversations kind of stuff, and then uh, it started, this sounds funny, but it started with a Twitter DM. Oh, wow. Um, and it was from Jeff Luno, and it said, hey, uh, we're at Wrigley Field this week. Could you come meet with me? And I just said, well, that seems like a good idea. Uh, and, and I went, and... Um, and it felt like a job interview at a baseball game. And he asked me to fly to Houston the following week for a, a more formal conversation. Um, he made me an offer. We had some negotiations back and forth. And and, uh, and I ultimately accepted. And, and uh, that was the next eight years. Wow. What did the actual interview process look like at the time? What, what kind of questions did he ask? Um, you know, the, the I, I felt like the, the, the time at Wrigley Field was very much, um, I guess, a fit interview. Mm. Um, like they just seeing what I was like as a person or, or in person. Um, you know, I, I, if you only follow me on Twitter, I can, I don't know, maybe if you know me in real life, I can come up as a bit of an asshole and, um, <laughs> uh, it's, but, uh, you know, I think it was more of a fit interview. And then, you know, when I went to Houston, that was a more formal interview and I prepared something, you know, I sat down and said, if you put me in charge of pro scouting, here's how I would run pro scouting. Um, you know, as I was, I, I came ready to go on that and and talked about a few other things and and, and met with some other people you know Mike Elias and, and Sigma et al and, and people like that and, mm. and and had talks and then it all worked out uh, at least at that time did Jeff Luno have the whole kind of roadmap set out already for what he planned for the next I don't know five six seven years um it's baseball and you gotta you know you have to be flexible and you have to be willing to turn a dime I would say you know Yes, but it was in pencil and flexible would be the best way to put it. Um, so, I mean, there was idea of, of, you know, what we wanted to do and how long it would take and things like that. And, and, um, and you know, the discipline on that was fairly well maintained. But, you know, we certainly had to make changes and adjustments as we went along. Makes sense, especially, well, I guess with how 
how can we put it, how difficult 2013 was for the club purely on the, on the Major League side of things. I guess that, that wasn't the long-term focus in terms of the preparation being done at the lower levels to clear the farm, to clear to get everything in the positions that it needed to be to, to build something that was going to last rather than try and trade for, I don't know, older players that might be able to sort of breathe a last gasp of life into, <laughs> into a team. So, yeah, I, I think that makes perfect sense. What did, as pro scouting coordinator, when your first role at the club, for someone like myself who doesn't know the, the kind of ins and outs of that type of role. What does that actually involve on a day-to-day basis? What, do you, what are you doing during the season? I mean, I had that gig, I had that title, as more mm. accurately, for, for one year. And then I was uh, promoted title-wise to pro scouting director. So yeah. I was in charge of pro scouting. But even in my first year, I was still in charge of pro scouting. It's, it's just mm-hmm. kind of politics in the title game that is you know, one of the weird aspects of baseball. So uh, I ran our pro scouting operation. So I had a staff of, depending on the year, kind of 11 to 14 people uh, that were running around all over uh, the country at times, crossing a border to see an international player um, and, and, you know, tracking all the players and then, and, and filling in scouting reports and seeing guys and helping us make uh, player personnel decisions in terms of pro scouting at the same time. Um, you know, I was already kind of, I don't know, you know, stretching my wings here and there. I spent a lot of the spring uh, running around the country watching amateur baseball in preparation for the draft. Mm. Um, I took two to five trips a year to the Dominican to kind of cross-check some guys we were thinking about signing. Um, so I was running around watching baseball and, and, and also kind of managing a staff, like I said, of about, depending on the, on the year, kind of 10 to 14 about, and of you know, who were doing the same and running around seeing baseball and kind of, you know, making sure we were seeing the right players, uh, you know, moving things around when we need to see different players, getting ready for the trade deadline, all that kind of stuff. And in terms of actual trades and the negotiations involved with that, how much connection did you have with, with that? Um, I was always in the room for for all of our trade discussions, um, you know, from the smallest thing to the biggest thing. Um, so, you know, whether it was like a, a little pick up on the waiver wire or something like say the Justin Verlander deal. I was very much in the room and, and a part of those discussions and a part of that process uh, over my last couple of years as a special assistant, I, I was able to actually even do some of the negotiations myself. And sometimes you saw them all the way through and sometimes they end up getting kicked up to a higher pay grade. Um, but yeah, I was always, I was around, if there was a trade made between September, 2012 and uh, you know, the end of my tenure in October, mm-hmm. I was certainly a, a voice in the room and part of it. That Verlander trade, that must have been a thrilling moment. I mean, I think to say the least. I mean, what was that like being there kind of on the front line for that? I mean, it was very weird, obviously. That was a, uh, you know, not to get too obtuse with the rules, but that trade actually came after the trade deadline. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was a waiver deadline deal. And so, um, you know, like I said, I mean, my job was to evaluate players and to make recommendations on players. So, you know, once that deal was agreed to in terms of players, my work was done. And, and while I would be in Houston or on the road with the team during the July trade deadline, I was at home when we got the Verlander deal done. And, you know, that was up to people who were not me as far as taking care of all the paperwork and for Verlander to sign off it. So I was just kind of sitting here staring at my phone waiting for a text to let me know whether it's done or not. Um, you know, and, and it was very late at night, you know, that, that it, it was a midnight deadline. And so, you know, it, it was like, we got him. Oh, shit, I don't think we have him. Oh, shit, I think we have him. And it kind of went back and forth. And I remember, you know, telling my wife, I just need a drink at this point and, and, and pouring one. And um, and finally, um, you know, by the time I knew it was for sure, it was actually, I believe, after midnight. It was, you know, it was like three minutes after when we knew for sure that, that Verlander had signed off on it. But it, it was a wild night. But it was a it was a weird one in the sense that, you know, again, as, as you know, just a, a player evaluator and a player personnel 
person who was advising, you know, the, 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 the player aspect of that deal was done, you know, well before all of the kind of, of drama and, and in terms of getting the no trade approval and all the sign-offs and things like that. Mm. In terms of the way that trade negotiations play out, is it similar to the way that it's depicted in, say, Moneyball, or is it is no. that just a is that just a <laughs> Hollywoodized fantasy, which is nothing like what it is in reality? It's really kind of not. I mean, you know, I, it, there's one scene in Moneyball where he actually, I think, flies to, if I remember right, Cleveland to, to do a trade negotiation. Yeah. No one gets on, no one gets on a plane, um, and and you know, to be honest with you, it's funny stuff. I, I probably eighty to ninety percent of the first, yeah, you know, of all the initial talks are just text messages back and forth. A um, lot of texting. Uh, and, and just like, I think the other thing is just the amount of talks that happen that no one really hears about publicly. You know, I used to joke that, you know, for every kind of 200 talks initiated by even one, you know, one side or the other, maybe 10 turn into real conversations. And of those 10, maybe one turns into a, a transaction that actually gets over the line. Um, so it's a lot of, uh, I mean, a wasted time is a bad word, but it's a lot of wasted time. Yeah, I, I can only imagine the amount of not even weren't to be trades, but just yeah, just things that which never took off, which people never find out about, sure. which they'd probably find very interesting in in, in retrospect. What did you find that the, were the sort of biggest and the, and the greatest challenges of that role, of this sort of the pro scouting role? Um, I mean, the trade stuffs are hard. Trades are hard. It's hard to get. It, you know, it's hard to to find a match. You know, it, it's mm. tough because you you know you like your own players. That's hard. Not it's hard not to like your own players. Yeah. And and they like their own players. It's hard for them not to like their own players, and for them to for you to find something you're willing to give up or something they're willing to give up is is it's can, can prove to be quite difficult. Um, and so that's usually the hardest thing is just finding a range. And and everyone, you know, I, I think at times you see a trade, you go, oh, that makes a lot of sense for both teams, and often they do. But uh, you know, when you're in, you're trying to win a trade, like you're trying to get more than what you're giving away obviously and it's it's tough to get those mashups right yeah i can, can certainly imagine that's the case of a very difficult balancing act purely on the scouting side of things i guess there are a, a lot of variables but were there specific things which you were looking for i guess like high contact rates uh, for hitters or uh, high spin rates for, for, for pitchers what, what sort of things were you analyzing when you're trying to assess whether someone's worth taking a longer look at uh, I mean, it's complicated it's it's, it's it's you know those things all sound really good to me but you're looking at kind of the whole player and it's 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 uh, you know, can this guy make contact? Can this guy make hard contact? Can this guy play defense? Does this guy have a good approach at the plate in terms of, of you know balls and strikes and swinging at the right pitches and things like that? Um, can this guy run? Um, you know, for pitchers, what does this guy's delivery look like? Is he a starter? Is he a reliever? How hard does he throw? But you know, beyond that, how you know what's his fastball look like? Um, you know, there's there are there's such a thing as like a really good 91 mile an hour fastball and a really bad 99 mile an hour fastball. Um, you know, can he spin a baseball in terms of, of throwing a breaking ball? Can he get off speed? Can he command his arsenal? Uh, and then there's the kind of stuff that, that that doesn't really get talked about enough, which is kind of the, you know, almost like the private investigator work of, you know, who is this guy? What's this guy like? How's this guy going to fit in the clubhouse? Does this guy work? Um, and, you know, this, 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 you know, the general baseball term is makeup. You know, what, mm. what's, what's, the, what's the makeup on this guy? Um, you know, is he going to get along? Is he going to be open to to the way we develop players? Is he going to be open to coaching and instruction and kind of some of the new technology stuff the Astros used? And um, you know, that played a really huge role as well. And when you're making some of these decisions, 
Definitely. I think we can all sort of, without naming names, think of you know, players over the years who perhaps haven't quite gelled with the chemistry of the clubhouse as much as others may have done so. So I can imagine the additional challenges that that adds to that role. What was the major difference between when you were, you were director of pro scouting for four years and then you became special assistant to the GM player personnel, quite a long title, but obviously a different, yeah. slightly different role. What were the primary differences when you moved to that in 2016, I think it was 2016, to that special yeah. assistant role? What new responsibilities did you have? Um, I mean, it was, it was, yeah, it was 2017 when that happened. And oh, sorry, yeah. you know, I, it, that's fine. I, I still maintained a lot of what I was doing. I was still um, mostly evaluating players, um, be they pro, uh, amateur domestic for the drafter or amateur international for the international signing period. That was most of my role. And, and also, you know, obviously consulting on, um, trade stuff and, and, and consulting on free agents and, and all sorts of, of player personnel pieces, if you will, in terms of, of roster management and things like that. Um, I think, you know, the thing that maybe changed the most was just that I was, um, you know, at times doing a little more, uh, for lack of a better term, front-facing stuff for the Astros. So I was mm. I was calling teams about trades. I was calling agents about free agents and, and meeting with agents at the GM and winter meetings and things like that. That was kind of, of, of you know the one new thing that came with that role. In that role, it's highly competitive, hugely competitive in terms of trying to get ahead of the opposition in terms of getting players and sort of sniffing out the next great success. How much contact did you have with opposing front officers? Like, do you ever speak to them just generally, or is it a case of, oh, keep everything very hush hush? Don't want to show your cards. How, how does it work? Um, you know, it, it is a, it is a, it's it's a weird industry, and at times, it's, you know, it's good to have friends in the industry, and maybe only people in the industry can understand what other people in the industry are going through. And so, you have friends, mm-hmm. and you certainly, you know, have lunches and dinners and phone calls and and texts and things like that. Um, but it is a highly competitive thing, and 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 at times you really don't talk to people unless you're there to talk about business and, and talk about a you know a potential trade or things like that. But you, it's good to keep those kind of contacts in case you need them for something else, you know. And and, and it becomes like a almost like a, a at times an information sharing agreement at times where you know it goes back to some of the makeup stuff. You know, we're looking at player X. Player X used to be on this team i know a guy at that team and i can ask him about this player and ask him what he's like and he's going to tell me even though it might not be helping his team and helping my team but he's going to tell me anyway because he knows that the favor can be returned he knows that if something happens where um you know all of a sudden his team's looking at a player and he used to be an astro he can call me and i'll help him out with the same thing you know it's it's known and so you do have contact with other teams a lot Hmm. and i guess some teams easier to deal with than others absolutely yeah I'm not trying and, to just sling out mud here, but I've read that the Orioles were quite difficult to deal with at one point, and I don't know if that's something that was true, but I guess there are specific teams which you kind of might have had sort of, not warning signs, but like sort of mm-hmm. like, oh, right, do I have to deal with them? Yeah, and some teams are more difficult than others. We also kind of, you know, split up, like I talked about, you know, in terms of, you know, often I would deal with agents. There was a set number of agents that I deal with and a set group of agents that I deal with and a set group that I didn't deal with. And, you know, these are the agents I dealt with because I knew people there, had good relationship with them. And the same went for teams. You know, we, we kind of split up the responsibility for teams. And I had a set number of teams where there were people, you know, be it the, the GM or the AGM, where, you know, I knew the guy and had a good relationship with them. And so that was the team I got. Makes sense. We often hear about, when looking back over the last decade, or the last half decade, how far ahead the Astros were in terms of innovating, in terms of their analytics and the microscopic detail to which they were taking all their decisions. How far ahead were the Astros compared to the rest of the league? Um, I, I think they were pretty damn far ahead for a while. I think the, the, the gap has 
massively been 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 drawn in by other mm. teams. Um, you know, I think some of the advantages that we thought we had at the time, uh, I don't think the Astros have anymore. Um, I think at times that was most jarring uh, during the draft, where you know over the last three or four drafts, all of a sudden, um, you know, players that that the Astros really liked that uh, were seen as as you know our little secret, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. All of a sudden, they'd go off the board, and you're like, oh, they saw it too, huh? Um, and then you know they're onto it. You know they're onto what you're looking at and players and things like that. And 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 so that kind of thing, I think. You know, every team's made very, very large in- investments into into you know kind of the analyst R and D world of the sport, and um, and it, I, I think it's really hard to have any sort of. I mean, there are competitive advantages. It's just the size of them have have reduced dramatically over the last four to five years. Yeah, I wonder. This is a slight tangent, but I, I wonder where the game is going in uh, an analytical sense over the next decade. Do you, I mean, where do you where do you see it going? This is, well, I wasn't actually going to go through this route just yet in the conversation, but if you look at the difference between say twenty years ago and ten years ago, and then ten years ago and now, it seems to be like ramping up and further and further and further to the point where, like I said, everyone is looking for that little advantage, and it's harder and harder to find those little pockets of something which has not been looked at before. Where do you see the, the scouting? and analytical side of the sport in, say, 10 years from now? Um, I, I think there's a long way to go in terms of, of evaluating hitters. I think pitchers, uh, is in terms of using data and video, I think are the ability of the industry to evaluate pitchers using data and video is, is still, even though it's gotten way better with hitters, it's still mm. way ahead of hitters. And so I still think there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of growth potential in the in the way we evaluate and therefore develop hitters. Uh, and I still think defense is um, is something that we don't analyze well through data. Um, I, I you know I'm not a big believer in a lot of defensive stats out there. I think they're poor. Um, and then the, the the you know it's 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 funny you asked this because it's it was kind of the you know the great white whale for teams ten years ago, but it still is in a lot of ways is uh, health and injuries. Yeah. Um, you know, and is there ways to use this kind of, of data we're getting and, and, and use some of the technology out there to help keep players on the field? Um, and I think even, you know, like a, a decade later, I still think that's still an, an unsolved mystery in a lot of ways. Intriguing. That's very interesting to hear that. I certainly await that sort of development with an open eye. I self-confessed I'm not the most statsy kind of guy in baseball fandom out there. I, I very much value them, but I've, I've never been the most adept at sort of getting into the sure sort of deep analytics when it comes to the kind of most advanced stats i find it fascinating reading about it and i love reading what people such as yourself the content you guys put out there i try and make as much sense as i can but <laughs> yeah it's, that's interesting to hear that both in the health sense and a hitter sense that you believe there's a lot of room for expansion out there going back to the astros against the rest of the league in terms of trying to stay ahead of the game specifically looking at the jeff luno regime do you think the perception of that regime as being, especially nowadays, as being so kind of very... Um, cold and calculated? Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, cold and calculated, <laughs> that's, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Um, so yeah, it, it, it is the perception that's, that is now considered across the baseball world of that. Is that fair reflection or is that just after the facts and slightly over-dramatized? Um, I, I, both probably, uh, you know, as, as annoying as an answer as that might be. Um, I, the Astros were cold and calculating, but I think they're part of an industry that's cold and calculating. Um, and I think there was a lot of pressure put on the Astros because they were kind of the outsiders and the new guys in town. 
Yeah. Um, and so they were kind of the, 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 the photo op for what was actually, in, in, in many ways, still is an industry-wide problem in terms of being cold and calculating it impersonal. But um, yeah, shows you know, brought a lot of it onto themselves and you know, brought in management consultants who were monsters and you know, you know did things like that. And, and so, um, yeah, I mean, they deserve it, but I don't think, I think a lot of things the Astros did were individualistic and, and bad. And I think a lot of things the Astros got blamed for were things that you'll find with, with every other team in baseball. Yeah, which brings us on to the somewhat elephant in the room of 2017 and the scandal. Let's um, do it. Yeah, I think as a fan, I look at it and it was an enormous shame, to put it mildly, that, that it mm-hmm. happened. But at the same time, I personally was somewhat shocked by the level of vitriol beyond that because the team cheated, it's, it's, you know, it's, it happened. There's no debating that. There's, no, there's sure. no turning away from that. But at the same time, you look at the history of baseball and it is so murky and it's littered with doctored balls, caught bats, PEDs, all sorts of things all over the show, not to mention the societal issues that plagued it in, um, uh, without going into further details uh, over the last hundred years. And I still do. That, and still do. Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely. And still do. And I just thought that the response following what happened was overblown in terms of the media reaction. It was designed to garner clicks and to sort of further up this frothing mass on social media and whatnot were you surprised by the level of that i mean and also two two questions were you surprised by the level of that and also do you think that the coverage presented by well i'm not trying to drag people's names in through the mud but i'm just saying that the the way it was presented by say jeff passan and evan drellick and ken rosenthal was it a fair reflection of what was going on in baseball at the time, because let's face it, whilst the Astros were undoubtedly the stupidest to engage in such a caveman-like <laughs> attempt to, to, to deliver um, stolen signals, that was something which quite clearly, if you look at the Apple Watch saga, if you look at other instances of replay room issues that happen across the league, was that a fair presentation of that issue? Um, I mean, I don't know about how well I could speak to it being fair to baseball, but like as far as how the Astros were treated, I mean, uh, the reaction is not something necessarily the people writing that stuff can control. Um, the reaction is going to be the reaction. That's the public. And, mm. and you, know, you know, they didn't, in terms of talking about what the, what the team did during games, um, nothing they wrote was untrue. And so it's, I don't, you know, I, it's certainly, I mean, look, I know, I, I know Jeff and, and Evan and Ken, and I consider them friends. And then I don't, I, I certainly don't hold any grudges against them. No, fair enough. I think for me personally, it wasn't so much what they wrote about 2017, which is absolutely fair. Like I said, it was true. It happened. It was more the fact that it, it didn't squash enough the postscript, which was this ludicrous buzzer nonsense, which followed yeah. Altuve, which was, which in my opinion, and I have to say, I found fairly disgraceful because it was propagated online. I know it started off with, I think it was John Boy who allowed that Belshan's niece rumor, which was bizarre, to go out there. And uh, it wasn't squashed enough because at the end of the day, you had Jose Altuve, who statistically, if you look at sciencestillingscandal.com, the incredible effort by the Astros fan uh, Tony Adams to document all the bangs from the scandal. Jose Altuve was one of the, I think, three or four players who basically didn't engage in this at all. And for him to then become the poster boy and the figurehead for the whole scandal was outrageous. That's for me, Mm -hmm. as an Astros fan, I felt the media didn't do enough to say, right, this is what happened, this is what didn't happen. They they were happy to let that narrative kind of play out. And unfortunately, now the fans believe it. Maybe I don't know how many people believe that. I mean, it's it's you know not to get political with you again, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but I mean, you're talking about a country where 
you know, 25% of the, of the population believes that one party is satanic and eats children. Um, so, so, you know, I, I don't know why you need to get too surprised at them. They believe the other stuff. And, you know, the thing is like, they have a base truth that the Astros bang trash. Yeah. I like, I like yeah. you calling it caveman. Cause at times it got, it always kind of made me laugh. Just like, you know, like teams would like, or, or, you know, people would write about this, like some sort of sophisticated scheme. I'm like, they're banging a trash can. I know. Yeah. This is not sophisticated. This is dumb. Yeah. And, um, you know, and so, yeah, it's, 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 I guess it doesn't surprise me. And I just kind of think in today's world, that stuff's unavoidable. True. Very true. And I think this, yeah, social media is definitely the kind of melting pot where it all gets thrown in and, and everything catalyzes against one another and, and yeah. it becomes something that it shouldn't. But yeah, I think, I think it's an accurate assessment of it. And then naturally moving on to what happened with that email of yours, which then somehow, again, somehow became front and center. Sure. Despite, totally agree with you on on your assessment of it is an email which is speculative at best just saying can we look at, at dugouts to see if you know by, by perfectly legal means to see if there are things we can pick mm-hmm. up on which we can then use to our advantage which is again that's well within the laws of the game and within the use of technology so it's it, very very strange i mean what, what were you feeling when you saw that suddenly like become front page news um, you know, it wasn't fun, obviously. And I kind of woke up my, my Twitter DMs were open at the time. They're open again, by the way, but, yeah. um, uh, they're open at the time. And, and, you know, I got my share of death threats and weird threats of sexual violence and stuff like that. It was, wow. a, it was, it was a good day. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you said, it was just a weird thing. I didn't even remember the email to be honest with you. Didn't even remember it. Um, and, and we never did it. And it, like you said, it was about scouts at, at, at non Astros games, first of all, um, and scouts in the stands who can't even see what the catcher is doing anyway. And it was about picking up base coach signals and hopefully yeah. we could decode them and tell our, tell AJ and his staff about them. And they would use their naked eye during the game to pick them up and then, you know, very normal course of business. And, um, but it, you know, the word Astros and cameras were in it. And so it took off and all of a sudden, um, you know, I was a monster and being cast by some as like the mastermind behind it, which was very strange um, when, you know, I didn't live in Houston. I really had no involvement in day to day game day operations. Mm. But here it was. And, 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 you know, yeah, it was it was it was really upsetting. And it, um, you know, and it, it took a real personal toll, to be honest with you. And, and um, it, it did have some value. You'll, you, you know, you learn. Uh, I learned very well uh, from that time who my friends are. And and that's the one thing I can take away from it that I that I still really value. No, I appreciate that. From reading your, as I said, your comeback piece on fan graphs, I very much detected, to put it mildly, the disappointment that um, you didn't receive backing from the club to squash that story. And I, I find that strange that they didn't, because what you said about they were worried that it would just make it front page news again. The story wasn't going away anyway, so it actually right. would have made more sense to say, look, this is not at all part of what happens. You know, I don't want to burn personal bridges with the Astros but at all, but this, it's just, yeah, I find that very strange, and I think that's absolutely not not the way it should have gone down, and I'm sorry you had to, to go through that whole experience. I'm sure there were, like I said, a lot of unfortunate life lessons to learn from how the response kind of bore out. Um, yeah, for sure. Let's, I don't want to spend too much time talking about that. Let's slightly move back on to, uh, whilst you're with the Astros, what was your most satisfying success in your tenure? Um, you know, I don't... I don't, I'm not a big fan of, and, and a lot of, of kind of taking credit for something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I feel like, um, 
you know, when a, when, when a trade was good and something good happened, I, it really always was a, a team effort. And there were a lot of people involved and a lot of people chiming in, a lot of people looking at players, a lot of people making suggestions. And, and the, the end result of, a, you know, a trade or a free agent signing or a draft pick, you know, comes from the work of, of a lot of people. Um, and so I, I was never a fan of, of, of kind of keeping score like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think if there's one thing I'm proud of is just kind of proving, you know, when, when I first started there, you know, we were really the first team that was focusing on um, super low-level baseball. So like the rookie complex leagues in Arizona and Florida, as well as the, the even lower rookie-level Dominican Summer League in the DR. Like we were looking at those players and, and trying to identify players before they got to hyped up and before yeah. their own team got too excited about them and and that that structure worked well for us for a little while um and so i was proud of, of that and i was i was I, you know proud that i you know, put a big role into shading that and now all teams do it so i think kind of you know having a theory on how to do pro scouting differently and having that theory um, pan out and get copied is, is, is something that, that I'm really proud of as opposed to like any sort of single one move. And I, you know, I think, and I'm not the only person who would tell you this, but I think when you, when you, when you know, you're kind of in the shit as it was, um, mm-hmm. you focus more on the mistakes and the successes. You know, I was perfectly cool with us trading Josh Hader, you know, and, and just thought he'd be a, a decent reliever and not, you know, one of the more dominant yeah. ones in all of yeah. baseball, yeah. you know, yeah. and, I was all for that. That was a mistake, um, you know, and things like. And you think about that far more than, than than a trade you got right. You know, I never kind of, you know, I never would relitigate the Verlander deal in my head. But you know, but I I, I certainly think about that one a lot. You, you think about you think about the mistakes. Cause I, I guess that's because you know, that's where you're going to learn. But you you do end up focusing more on on the mistakes than the success stories. Yeah, that must have been quite thrilling. Like I said, in the early days when you you would see, I don't know, a, a kind of uncut gem in like the Dominican league, and you're thinking, "Wow, like no one else has seen this guy. Let's go." That must have been quite a, a thrilling sort of experience to go through. Was that sort of the kind of vibe that you got? You'd see someone and be like, "Wow, this is just." I mean, it was yeah, it was fun on. to tend to get excited about a guy you never heard of. Um, mm-hmm. That's always fun, and then like you know, then you just would end up hoping that the team doesn't realize he's as good as you think he is <laughs> you know that was a, that was what you're always hoping for and and you know often they were all over it and they're like yeah we're not gonna trade that guy we know he's good um and every once in a while you'd ask for someone and they wouldn't really they wouldn't really know yet what was it like being part of that great astros transformation through the mid 2010s so like you know looking from say the change between say 20 2014 2015 was when it really started hitting its stride what was that whole experience like? I had Reed Ryan on the show last time, and mm-hmm. uh, he was just speaking of his pride at that whole transformation. And it must have been something which filled everyone with a great deal of, well, yeah, a great deal of pride, really. I mean, it was it was great to see results. It was great to see the 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 you know the the long term plan coming to to fruition. And you know, it's team two thousand thirteen was was miserable. You know, and you'd, you'd try you'd actually avoid the big league games and maybe focus on what's going on the minor league yeah. side and things like that. And um, you know, so it was nice to see things coming to fruition on 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 the big league side. I think um, bringing in AJ Hinch was a was a huge part of that, um, and you know, and having all these young players kind of come up and do what you thought they could do. You know, and having you know, it started with Springer, but you know, obviously Correa and further down the line Bregman and some of the pitching and things like that, and seeing these guys 
come in and step up and, and seeing everything kind of work out and you know making some some big deals obviously we talked about verlander um but kind of seeing a plan come together yeah it was absolutely gratifying it was it was a lot of fun yeah and um and looking at those years i guess it's the name of the game but looking at the first round picks that we had over that whole period you had some spectacular hits and some equally spectacular misses. What was that like having the problems with like Mark Appel and Brady Aiken? And, and then you contrasting that with Springer and Correa and Bregman. So you had like the sort of the sublime to, well, not to be unfair to them, but sublime to the ridiculous. Yeah, what sure. was that like? Um, you know, I think it's baseball, first of all. You know, those, those are not the first, first picks not to work out. You know, yeah. um, the draft is a very, very difficult thing. And, it, and, um, I think maybe more importantly, professional baseball is exceptionally difficult. <laughs> and, um, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think people necessarily um, realize just how unbelievably good these guys are, right? Yeah. And so um, it's hard, and it's hard to make adjustments and find to end up with um, non-baseball issues, if you will. There's a whole lot of things that can go wrong when you, you know, take an 18-year-old away from his home uh, and ask him to do this every day and give him two more. Um, there's a whole lot of whole lot of uh, puddles to jump over, if you will. Uh, it's really hard. It's really really hard. And a lot of things can go wrong, and, and they do go wrong. You know, if you look at the history of, you know, first round picks, uh, you know, the, yeah. the world's the world's filthy with ones that never got to the big leagues. You know, it's it's a it's a long way. It's one of the things that makes the sport more unique. Um, you know, I don't know how much you follow other U.S. sports. I don't even follow U.S. sports that much. <laughs> Um, not, not so you know, much. Yeah, like in football and basketball, when you take your first round pick, he's expected to be an everyday player for your team the next year. Mm. You know, in, in baseball, these players are years um, away. Yeah, away, and they have to they have to work their way up, and so it's a different dynamic, and there's it's it's, it's filled with potential pratfalls. One of the responsibilities that was listed on the Astros page in terms of describing what you did, it mentioned about managing club relationships with foreign teams in Asia and Latin America, mm-hmm. etc. What kind of involvement with the teams would you have? Was it purely on a player level? Did you contact the teams in any other ways? Uh, what, what did that involve? It was all purely on a player level. Um, you know, in, in, there's a whole process for if a player wants to go to Japan or if a team wants to inquire about a player wanting to go to Japan. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that was kind of our point of contact for Asian teams for that kind of thing. Um, and often, you know, worked with other Japanese teams as far as establishing relationships and data sharing and talking about, um, you know, sharing some some lessons learned and kind of creating partnerships and things like that. But it was mostly player-based and talk about, um, you know, hey, there's this guy at AAA you have over here in Japan, you know, is that something we can discuss and, and, and taking it from there when you were interested in taking it from there? Which kind of teams were you involved with in terms of the, like those connections if they're not something which is confidential? No, these are like NPB teams, so Japan League teams and Korea League teams. And, and you know, obviously, you know, as you know, players from Major League Baseball go over to Japan and Korea yep. and get to play every day and make more money. Um, a lot of them are signed as free agents, but a lot of them are teams that are under are players who are under contract with a team. Um, and, and when that's the case, you know, if the player is really interested, you try to work something out. You can't always do it because the player has value to you. But you try to work something out that involves um, a buyout, basically, where the, yeah. the, the Japanese or Korean team will, will write a, ca- a check and you'll release the player and you can go play in Japan. I guess the process is, I mean, this is stating the obvious, but I guess the process is very different for uh, operating with teams in Japan and Korea than, say, from teams in Dominican Republic or anywhere else in the Latin Yeah, I mean, those Winter League teams are, that's a different, that's a different dynamic. Like, those players, when they go play Winter League ball, are still with you, you know? Yeah. It's still, like, it's still, you know, 
a Houston Astro or a New York Met or a Los Angeles Dodger player who mm. just happens to be its winter league team, and he's just that's his assignment. Then he wants to go down there um, and get more reps. They also get paid. Um, they you know, make a little bit of money playing baseball and things like that. So that's that's a totally different dynamic. You know, when a player goes to Japan or Korea, you're releasing him from his contract. And he is now an employee of that team. Yeah. Um, you know, and so it's, it's a very different thing. Moving on to the post-Luno era, 2020, and the changes which you mentioned in, in your role, which came to pass under James Click having come in and with AJ Hinch having left with Dusty Baker in. Why do you think that was? Is it that the club was moving away from from the, the level of analytics that were being, or the way that analytics were being handled under Luno, or is it, was there another reason? I, just, I found that quite interesting, and I wondered why, if you knew why, you thought that might be the case. I don't think the team's moved away from analytics at all. Um, yeah, I think Click's a very analytic-based mm. GM. Um, I don't think they've lessened their dependence on them. I, if anything, I think they might even be a little bit more dependent on them. Um, it's just, uh, but, you know, like I said, you know, about my personal decision, it was difficult. And, then, and a lot of it was because of the pandemic. I wasn't able to go to Houston. Um, yeah. I wasn't able to travel around and go see players. Um, now, I still wasn't very involved did everything I could from here. But, you know, it was different. And, and you know, I've said this many times, and I'll probably say it in, until my dying breath. You know, it's 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 a new administration. And, and, and um, you know, they have the right to, to structure a front office any way they want to. And, and, and this is how the industry works. People want to, you know, they want their own people in. They want their own structure. And, and, and that's why I'm where I am today. And, you know, all for the best, really. Fair enough. And I think that's a very uh, mature outlook to take on it. Um, I, I once in a while I show maturity. It's very rare. <laughs> Mark that. <laughs> um, chance to show a little less maturity here. Um, just last, <laughs> last thing on the Astros. Do you have a, a funny story or an interesting story from your eight years there, which people would never have heard of otherwise, which might be interesting? It's a wide-ranging question. Yeah, anything. It could be um, anything. You can pick anything you want. Yeah, you know, I don't know. It's it's. I'm trying to think of anything really interesting um, or funny. Could that be I funny. Could be unusual. Actually, could be just, yeah. I mean, the whole thing was unusual. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, the most recent laugh I had was in spring training of, of 2020. Um, this was February. And so, um, you know, we weren't, it wasn't a pandemic in the United States yet. Like we were, yeah. you know, everyone was paying attention to the news in Europe. And at the same time, like the general sense was, ah, it's not going to happen here. That's Europe's problem. <sighs> and, um, yeah. you know, and so I was actually in Florida for spring training and um it was the very first day and i had not met dusty baker yet and dusty's dusty's great dusty's hysterical and funny and, and true and really insightful and, and he's great and i went into his office and introduced himself and and he said oh i know i, I know you billy owens told me about you and billy owens is a assistant general manager with the oakland a's who i'm close with mm. and he goes yeah billy told me about you i like you i, I like i like the i like the shape that i like the earring you're a cool motherfucker <laughs> I'm like, oh, hey, we're great. Now. Me and Dusty are good now. Oh, yeah, no, Dusty Baker definitely has um, Dusty's got a, a very man. enjoyable way with words. Uh, I'd yeah. love to get him on this show. I really would. He's um, great. That's great. Right. I think to wrap up, let's talk about what you're doing now once again for Fangraphs and what people can expect from that. Uh, sure. You know, it was, it was, it's fun. You know, I, I 
you know, obviously I, my, my, my time with the Astros came to an end. Uh, I, was, I was talking to teams. I had, you know, uh, quite a few media outlets reach out and was talking to a lot of people. And, you know, Fangraph seemed like the kind of place I wanted to be uh, just mm. in terms of, of freedom to do what I want. Um, and I really, really like what they do. And, and it, it seemed like a, a place I wanted to be a part of. And um, I, you know, it, it's, a, it's a wide ranging thing. I write about baseball. I write about whatever strikes my fancy, really. Um, at the same time, you know, I found that even before I worked in baseball, um, I had a lot of contacts in the game and, and writing these pieces. I always called them how the sausages made pieces. Yeah. Yep. You know, and talk about how things really work. And, and those things were always um, really, really well received. And so, uh, you know, writing more of those, you know, and, and trying to hopefully to bring, um, you know, some insight. I like to pretend I gained for my eight years in, on the inside yeah. and, 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 and apply that to what's going on to, to help fans better understand. And um, so doing that kind of stuff, and it can be, you know, really fun stuff. Uh, I can, I can, you know, sometimes I'm just simply breaking down a free agent signing. Um, sometimes I'm asking team officials if a circus clown could do arbitration. Uh, I just finished a piece that's not up yet. It'll go up Monday where I try to set odds for the pl next player to make $400 million on a contract. Oh, wow. um, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and then also, you know, in my previous life, like you said, I did all sorts of media stuff. I was kind of, a, mm. oh, I believe in the hustle. And, um, you know, I had a podcast that was actually like the thing I was most famous for. Is that um, an up and in one? And that was up and in, and that yep. was it was it was a really good show, and we had a lot of fun, and it was, you know, it was on the surface about baseball, and and uh, you know every episode we certainly talked about baseball, but at the same time, you know, we talked about other things. We're human beings. We have interests outside of baseball, and um, you know sometimes. Scott Boris was the was the guest, and sometimes the guest was, um, you know, a guy who lives in Alaska and traps hawks at an airport because that <laughs> sounded weird, right? And yeah, we could talk about you know we, you know, I always have independent bands on my podcast every week and play their music and promote them. Um, you know, we talk about other cultural things. Um, you know, there's we would always talk about baseball, but you know, if we spend you know twenty five minutes talking about something that has nothing to do with sports, that's fine too. Um, and I think that was part of the reason the show was so good. And, um, and so uh, podcasting again, um, you know, I didn't want to call it up and in, I want kind of a related baseball term I ended up calling it chin music. Um, the first like episode it. actually came out today. Uh, today's is Friday. And um, uh, David Roth was my guest co-host. Co I don't know if you know who he is with a uh, defector media used to be a dead spin. Um, he was my guest co-host for the first episode. We had Pedro Mora, who writes about the Dodgers, talk about the Trevor Bauer signing, or, or more more actually kind of the, the, the personal dynamics behind the Trevor yeah, Bauer absolutely. signing, yep. mm -hmm. um, as well as kind of what it's like to cover baseball during a pandemic. Um, you know, we talked about, you know, everything from spring trading starting to Tim Tebow retiring to um, the late <laughs> yeah. 60s TV sitcom That Girl. You know, it's it's it's... It's two hours. An eclectic mix. Madness. I like that. Yeah, I we, like kind that. Of mess, we just kind of mess around and keep it conversational. And, and um, the people who like the podcast really like it, and the people who hated it really hated it. And we just cared about the people who liked it. Yeah. Which is just a good yeah. way to go through life. Definitely. Really. Good way to do it. Definitely a good way to do it. <laughs> Great. So, where can people find you on social media? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Kevin underscore Goldstein. Uh, and that's it. I, Facebook is a, is a horrible, horrible thing. I deactivated my account like four years ago and I've never regretted a second of it. 
it is an unusual interface and I will leave it at that. Um, thank you so much for spending time with me today, Kevin. I really appreciate it. Very, very insightful look at the sort of behind the scenes front office world and specifically with the Jeff Luno regime at the Astros. I wish you all the very best for your new podcast and the return to Fangraphs and look forward to catching up with you soon. I appreciate it. If you ever need anything, feel free to reach out. Certainly will do. Thanks very much. What a truly entertaining conversation that was. Kevin Goldstein didn't pull any punches and it is always very refreshing to be presented with that degree of honesty in the modern world. I particularly enjoyed hearing about the background behind trade practices and the relationship between opposing front officers. These are aspects as baseball fans which we sometimes perhaps take for granted and it was intriguing to hear what we see is only a surface scratch of what is really going on in the league between the teams. Kevin's assessment of how much the gap has closed between the Astros' innovative approaches and the rest of the clubs was most illuminating and led to his fascinating and thought-provoking views on the future development of analytic metrics within baseball, most notably in terms of the potential to use them more to preserve the health of players. I sympathise with Kevin greatly over how he was placed in the crosshairs of the scandal fallout, sadly not the only person attached with the club to be unfairly singled out by the public in its wake. Kevin Goldstein's views and honesty on the hot topics within baseball will certainly be worth following and I would absolutely urge you to check out his work once again for Fangraphs. Now, it's time for the latest prize draw to see who has won today's giveaway of the three Astros caps from across the most recent logo eras, which I have dubbed Astros Generations. As ever, I've noted all the social media handles of everybody who entered and assigned each of you with a number. Let's head once again to Google's random number generator with the number of total entrants set as a maximum to see who has won. And it is... Number 14, which is at Ricochet8262. Many congratulations to you. Remember that the two retro logo caps are pretty small, so hopefully they will find a happy home where you are. I'll be sending you a DM so that I can get these caps sent on their way to you. That's all for episode eight. Please make sure you're following me on Twitter. That's at Astros Fans UK. Please also do so on Instagram as UK Astros Fans and on Facebook, even if it may not be my favorite interface, where you'll find me as George Martin with the Union Jack in Astros colors as the display pick. If you have any Astros across the globe questions, you can also email me at astrosfansuk at gmail.com. I must also urge you to follow Apollo, a group I'm hugely proud to be part of in representing Houston and who celebrated its one year anniversary just a few short days ago. So congratulations to everyone on board in this journey, which is only just beginning. That's at Apollo HOU on Twitter and Apollo HOU on Instagram. All Houston, all original. Apollo have some very exciting plans and developments in store for you all this year, and I will always keep my followers updated. Having said that, I too have some very exciting developments in store ahead of the Astros forthcoming season, so watch this space. A massive thank you as always for listening to Strokes Across the Globe. Please subscribe, rate and review to let me know how much you enjoy this podcast. Do spread that word. Keep an eye out for the next episodes of Strokes Across the Globe as I may have plans in the works already. Who knows? I look forward to having you all with me again soon for that. And remember, wherever you are across the globe, let's go Strokes.